Yasas. Welcome to Greek Like Me, the podcast about all things Greek for Greeks, Hellenophiles, and anybody else who's interested in learning about other cultures. I'm your host, Pamela Diotis Wood. Email us at stealthgreek at gmail.com to share comments, questions, and stories about Greeks, Greekness, or your own ethnic background. The story of Harry Agonis plays out like a Greek myth, as many have observed over the years. A handsome, godlike young man with incredible athletic skills, humility, generosity, adored by everyone around him, including his rivals. The Golden Greek. His life and death are as inspiring as they are heartbreaking. He became a sports legend in his teens. His skills and athletic accomplishments broke records in high school and college. When he started his professional career in baseball, all eyes were on him. And his legacy continues, almost 70 years after his bright light was unexpectedly snuffed out. I grew up like all Greek kids in the U.S., hearing the names of prominent Greek Americans, reminding us that our people, children of poor immigrants, were succeeding and that we should be proud. We should aspire to be like them. But when my husband suggested an episode about Harry Agonis, I didn't know anything about him. I'd never heard of him. How is this possible? He was huge in his time. Foundations, scholarships, playing fields, and a sports arena are named for him. His career was so amazing, his death so devastating to his family, professional sports, the world of baseball where he was making a name, and football where his legend had been cemented early on. Devastating to the entire state of Massachusetts, the U.S., and Greeks everywhere. Harry Agonis was the most celebrated Greek-American athlete of his era, according to William H. Samanides on the Gorak website. My dad was the ultimate football fan, but I never heard him mention the name Agonis. I suspect the tragedy of his death, which is still palpable in every article I read about him, made Harry Agonis a forbidden subject in our home, where my mother had never stopped mourning her teenage brother, another Greek high school football player loved by everyone, known for his kindness, whose death had affected everyone around him. Both Harry Agonis and my uncle Nick Diotis died well before I was born. Uncle Nick was almost never spoken of, but soul-crushing loss permeated our entire family. Harry's family and the world of sports kept his name and his spirit alive, and I felt the joy and the pride echoing down through the decades as his amazing exploits were described by the reporters and sports fans who witnessed them. And when I found the tributes of young athletes and the descendants of Harry's siblings, some of whom never met him, but still thrill at his accomplishments and share his lifelong desire to support other aspiring athletes. Harry was the youngest of seven children, born Aristotele Yorgos Aganis, that's Aristotle George Aganis, Ari for short, and that's where Harry came from. He was born in a Greek immigrant neighborhood in Lynn, Massachusetts, in a second-floor apartment to George and Georgia, both originally from Sparta. This child number seven was born months before the start of the Great Depression to a family that was already living in poverty. Like most children of immigrants, he spoke the first language of his parents at home. Most of his friends were from the neighborhood, other Greeks, and he attended St. George Greek Orthodox Church there, 
where he joined the Boy Scouts and played for the church basketball team. This is a story already so familiar to Greeks. A shared history with Harry. The kids whose first language was Greek because that's what their immigrant parents spoke. The Greek community that surrounds us. For our parents, it was the neighborhoods they lived in and where they went to church. For us and the younger generation, it's the churches that still pull the Greek community together, even though we've spread out into the suburbs. The Boy Scout troops that were run out of our churches, the church basketball teams we or our kids played on, that my kids played on. Harry first made himself known in junior high school, what we now call middle school. He was a star Park League player who, according to the Lynn Journal, was getting his hits off of big league pitchers playing on service teams during World War II. See, Little League wasn't a national thing yet, so kids and young adults played on teams sponsored by local parks. At the same time, there were so-called service leagues in the armed forces. Many of the pro players drafted during World War II played on service league teams. The most famous players played exhibition games, sometimes against local teams. Players like Joe DiMaggio. And baseball was huge in America at that time. The national pastime, the most popular sport by far. With no easy access yet to TVs to hypnotize the masses or internet distractions, it was popular entertainment for everyone. And Harry was already standing out. At Lynn Classical High School, Harry played football, baseball, and basketball. As a six-foot-tall 14-year-old, he was also playing first base for a semi-pro team under the name Ted Casey. Whether or not this was the semi-pro traveling team he and a friend put together, called the Vries Hall Stars, I'm not sure. He was enterprising. By the way, the Vries All Stars were named after their favorite diner in Lynn. Now that's a good Greek boy. Meanwhile, Harry was excelling at all three sports in high school, had grown to what was then an unusually tall six-foot-two with black curly hair and a big smile that attracted even non-sports enthusiasts into the stands. His talents on the field or the court earned him the nickname the Golden Greek. According to Agonis' New York Times obituary in 1955, during high school he compiled an outstanding record as a football and baseball player. So much so that the business manager and scout for the Boston Red Sox already had their eyes on him. They hired Harry while he was in high school to do odd jobs for the Sox team. They had an A farm team in Lynn, and they let him train with the team sometimes. In 1947, after leading his team to the state baseball championships, where he was named MVP, Harry batted 352 during the high school all-star game at the New York Polo Grounds. He was no slouch in football either. In 1946, his junior team, the Lynn Classical High School football team, went undefeated. Everyone attended the high school football games back then. The stadium, called the Manning Bowl, had a 20,000-seat capacity, and it was always packed. The team went on to win the Orange Bowl in Miami on Christmas Day that year. In 1947, the team had 10 wins and one loss and was invited to another bowl game. I believe it was in Tennessee. After being told the two black players on the team were not welcome, the team voted to decline the offer. Bravo! This was a rare show of solidarity with minority players in those days. I didn't find much about Harry's high school basketball career, which was also reportedly excellent. He was the star center. 
but I suspect that has more to do with the name he made for himself in football and baseball later on. And sports wasn't his only interest. He also loved to sing and performed in plays during high school. He starred in, in the Lynn Classical High School production of the musical Peter Pan as Captain Hook. I love it. When I was in high school, the jocks tended to stick with the jocks and the performing arts kids with each other. We did have a few with a foot in both camps, and they were wildly popular for their skills and for embracing everybody. So this only fueled Harry's popularity. Throw in that he liked to talk to everyone and was always friendly to the players on opposing teams, even known to introduce himself and shake hands with them. We can see he truly was golden. I mean, reading about this kid, I was loving him. When Harry graduated high school in 1948, his football jersey, number 33, was retired. He was offered football scholarships from 75 different colleges, including legendary football powerhouses like Notre Dame, yeah, that's the American pronunciation, the University of Tennessee, and Boston College. The Notre Dame coach, frankly, he called Harry the finest prospect I've ever seen. Boston College was the biggest football power in New England, according to Fenway Park Diaries. They sent their school's football captain to meet Harry and persuade him to accept their offer. Because he was also Greek, maybe. But during their chat, the Boston College team captain confided that there were a lot of students, alumni, and others in the Jesuit school who resented a Greek Orthodox student getting the captain's position. Which is earned, and usually voted on by the team. Who know which are the best players that are good at leading, and the most experienced, and who coaches trust, so bigotry. Wouldn't it be nice if intelligent, talented people didn't have to face that? Harry shocked everyone when he decided to go to Boston University, a school with a lackluster football team that nobody cared about. It was a non-religious, mostly blue-collar school, but it allowed him to be close to home and to his mother, who had been widowed just two years earlier. The famous Pappas Brothers of Massachusetts, who owned food stores throughout the Boston area, were big Boston University supporters. They reported they helped recruit Harry because BU was looking to upgrade its football program. They'd lost a number of varsity players to the military draft. But even before that, the team was nothing to brag about. The summer of 1948, after graduation, to make a little extra money and play the other sport he loved, Harry went north to Maine to play baseball with a semi-pro team called the Augusta Millionaires. But he was back in September to start his freshman year at BU, and he was ready to play football with the freshman team. According to Nick Tsiotis and Andy DeVillis, authors of a biography on Harry called Harry Agonis, the Golden Greek, an All-American Story, College football was more important than the pros in those days. College teams had huge fan bases, and Harry was such an amazing player that even the freshman team, usually not on anybody's radar, for the first time began drawing in large numbers of fans into the stadium. The Boston University Terriers played their home games at Fenway Park. Harry played offense, defense, was a punter, and a kicker. As a varsity player in his sophomore year, he set the Boston University record of 15 touchdown passes, and the team was named the second team All-American. This was a team that had never shown any distinction before. The Boston University versus University of Maryland game of 1949 was so exciting 
The radio network carrying the game locally switched programming to the national audience by halftime. Ciotis and Davila said Harry made Boston University a big name in football and carried his team to prominence. By the way, he played baseball too while he was there. But the BU baseball team was unknown and ignored. They didn't even have many games scheduled. Harry's college and football career was put on hold when he was drafted in 1950 during the Korean War. As a high schooler, he'd enlisted in a U.S. Marines Reserve Battalion, so it was the Marines that had called him up. He was sent to Camp Lejeune in North Carolina for 15 months, where along with training, he played on the camp baseball and football teams, setting record wins. He led the camp baseball team to the National Baseball Congress Tournament, where he was named MVP. He batted 347 in over 100 games. He was never sent overseas and eventually applied for a dependency discharge so he could return to Massachusetts to support his mom. He made it back just in time for Boston University's opening game of the season. When he got back, the Greek community in his hometown, Lynn, held a benefit dinner to honor Harry. Remember, his family was poor, his mom widowed. He was trying to make his way through college on a football scholarship, and he was always trying to help his family and his community. Greeks really do stick together. But he didn't keep the money they raised, which no doubt would have come in handy. Greece had been decimated by World War II, and the country was still struggling to recover. Harry knew sports was an escape for kids, sometimes out of their daily struggles, but sometimes literally an escape from poverty. He sent the money the community raised for him to his parents' small village in Sparta to pay for sports equipment for the kids. Meanwhile, Harry jumped into football like he'd never been away. This episode could easily turn into a list of stats and records, and I spent a lot of time culling through those to get into the meat of Harry's story. But I need to share the highlights because they are important to how he got where he was going. He was such an incredible athlete. The entire country was following him. According to the Boston University baseball blog, Harry was considered by many to be one of the finest athletes to ever come out of Massachusetts. In 1951, Harry completed 104 out of 185 passes and was named to the All-American team. That year, he won the Bulger Lowe Award for New England's Outstanding College Football Player. During the 1952 Boston University football season, BU's team was dominating, with Harry leading the way in tackles, passes, and interceptions. He was the Golden Greek. So much so that when the team played the biggest game of Harry's football career against the University of Maryland again, the Maryland team decided its best chance for success was to take Harry out. The Maryland team gang-tackled him repeatedly, and these were the days before face guards and proper shoulder and knee pads were used. A football player didn't have a lot of protection. The Maryland pylons were so brutal that Harry was badly injured and had to be helped off of the field. His ribs were badly bruised and he was out for the next two games. So never mind the good old days people are pining for. Poor sportsmanship has always been a thing. Nevertheless, the BU team finished the season with a record 17 wins, 10 losses, and one tie. After his junior year, he was the number one draft pick of the Cleveland Browns, who offered a $100,000 signing bonus to go pro. Meanwhile, in Harry's 1952 baseball season at BU, he batted 322. 
And in a move that gobsmacked everybody, that November he signed with the Boston Red Sox. Baseball! For half the signing bonus the Browns had offered him, $50,000. Harry gave a chunk of that money to the St. George Building Fund in Lynn. They were building a new church. He continued playing for the BU football team while he finished out his senior year and shined in the North-South Senior Bowl in Alabama. Football legend Red Grange called Harry the best football player he'd seen all year. Harry left Boston University holding school records for passing yardage, touchdown passes, punting averages, and interceptions. He held 15 school records in just three varsity seasons in football, and that had been interrupted by 15 months of Marine Reserve training. He was the first player to be chosen twice for Boston University's Athlete of the Year and was inducted into the BU Hall of Fame on graduation. His prize for making it into the Hall of Fame was $4,000 and a car. Harry asked Boston University to keep the money and use it to establish a scholarship for poor Greek American students. The first scholarship was awarded in 1955. Harry was flying high, but he continued to think about how he could help people in his community. The priest from Annunciation Cathedral in Boston, Father James Kukuzis, who had become one of the greatest archbishops of the Greek Orthodox Church in the Americas, Yakovos, said of Harry, he was rather humble and kind, and he liked to converse with everyone. He was grateful to God for his parents. A big part of Greek culture what we are raised with and reminded of throughout our lives is that pride will court bad things. Be grateful and give back in thanks for any good thing that happens to you. Be honorable, self-sacrificing, put others before yourself. Do the right thing. The Greeks call this amalgam of ideas philotima. Harry embodied this. It's why he touched everyone around him. In his new career in professional baseball, Harry did a year in the minors and came in second for Rookie of the Year. The next year, he was called up to the majors, playing with the Red Sox at Fenway, where he played football for three years with BU. According to the Lynn Journal, he was the only athlete in Fenway Park history to excel in both baseball and football. And I'm going to cite the Lynn Journal again here because they covered Harry's debut as a major leaguer. In his first game at Fenway Park, he tripled, singled, and executed a perfect sacrifice bunt. What an amazing first game. A little later on in the season, during a memorable Sunday game against the Yankees, Harry delivered three hits, including a home run, then, quote, hustled up Commonwealth Avenue to receive his degree at Boston University's graduation ceremonies. The Society for American Baseball Research says the game was against the Tigers, but at this point, who cares? Great story, and it was a degree in education, by the way. Whenever Harry traveled with a team, from his teenage years and the semi-pro traveling teams to his professional career, wherever he went, he visited the local Greek Orthodox Church. He came to know Orthodox priests all over the country, including that priest from Annunciation Cathedral in Boston, Father James Kukuzis. He later became the much-loved and influential Archbishop Yakovos of North and South America, who marched with Dr. Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama in March 1965. When he played home games, Harry regularly attended his neighborhood church, St. George, and lit a candle before every game. His first year with the Red Sox, Harry platooned with Dick Gernert for first base position, but got the spot full-time when Gernert took ill. 
For the first time in his baseball career, as far as I could see, Harry batted below 300. He hit 251 and lost the first base spot to another player for the next season. Hey, it was his freshman year in the big leagues. I've watched many a veteran player suffer through slumps. Pretty soon he was hitting 300 and won the first base position back. Sports writers loved him because he was so easygoing and humble. Veteran Red Sox teammate Ted Williams became a friend. Ted Williams. Harry proved himself to be a valuable asset to the team, and in the spring of 1955, everyone believed it was going to be his breakout season. The Golden Greek was finally hitting his stride. On May 15th, Harry played a doubleheader with his team. The next day, an off day, he approached the team trainer, complaining of a sharp pain in his side and coughing spells. The trainer took his temperature. He had a fever, and he sent Harry to Santa Maria Hospital in Cambridge. Santa Maria was a small Catholic hospital used by the team. Harry spent 10 days there with pneumonia in his right lung. He returned to the field on May 27th, looking pale and still coughing. He hit a triple, but rounding the bases, he stopped and sat down on second base, exhausted. Unbelievably, he continued to play and was allowed to continue to play. His batting average was 313 at that point. On June 2nd against the Chicago White Sox, he hit what Fenway Park Diaries calls a rocket that was miraculously caught by outfielder Jim Rivera. It was Harry's last ever at bat. On the team train to Kansas City, he was running a fever again. The trainers got him on a plane back home, back to Santa Maria Hospital, where he was diagnosed with pneumonia now in the left lung. To make things worse, he'd been suffering from phlebitis, a painful swelling in the wall of the vein in his calf, a lump in his case, since April. He'd even shown it to his girlfriend, Jean Delier. By now, Harry's leg was very concerning to the Santa Maria medical staff. Why they hadn't noticed the phlebitis during his last day, I couldn't discover. If it had been addressed then, would he have been playing ball in June instead of confined to a hospital bed for a second time? His leg was wrapped in ice in an attempt to prevent blood clots, and his cough wouldn't let up. Dr. Eugene O'Neill from Santa Maria said publicly, Harry was a lot sicker than he realized when he entered the hospital. His case is very complicated and serious one. If his condition warrants, he could be idle all season. This was the last thing Harry wanted to hear. He was worried about his job. Major League Ball didn't play seven digits back then, or even six. He was supporting his mother, helping his family. This was his job. And he must have been thinking about Dick Gernert, who battled him for the first base position during his freshman year, until illness took him out of the running. On June 16th, a few months after he turned 26, Harry was put on the voluntary retired list. This meant he was out for the season and couldn't be reinstated until 60 days after the end of the season. Harry must have been distraught. His visitors were limited to family, which is understandable because his family was so big. But Ted Williams was allowed to visit on June 25th. Multiple articles made a point of saying that Williams brought Harry a Davy Crockett magazine. The only magazine we could find called Davy Crockett in 1955 was a comic book. If that's what it was, it's kind of sweet. The Red Sox old-timer maybe brought the rookie a comic book. A little after Williams left, one of Harry's brothers came into the room and found him coughing up blood. The doctors decided to sit him up in a chair for the first time in weeks. I don't know what hospital protocol was then, 
but we know now how dangerous it can be to leave a patient lying on their back for prolonged periods of time. Whether this was a factor in what happened next, who knows. As the doctors and nurses lifted him up to place him in the chair, he grabbed at his chest and told them he had a terrible pain. A blood clot from a vein in his calf had broken loose and traveled to his lungs. Harry died 20 minutes later from a pulmonary embolism. The attending hospital staff said his last words were, take care of my mother. The Red Sox were in Pittsburgh, ready to play an exhibition game against the Pirates when they heard the news about Harry. They lost 8-2. to two. On the day of the funeral, the Red Sox were scheduled to play the Washington Senators in D.C. Red Sox management tried to postpone or cancel the game so the team could be home to attend the funeral. But the game was supposed to be a fundraiser for the Red Cross, and they couldn't cancel it. But the manager of the team was able to get the game pushed back an hour so the two local Greek Orthodox priests could conduct a service at home plate for Harry. Both teams, managers, and umpires lined up to bow their heads to pay their respects. A Marine color guard was in attendance to honor him for his military service. Red Sox announcer Kurt Gowdy gave an emotional description of the service over the radio. He said Harry's athletic feats were golden and shining, and so was Harry personally. Ted Williams wrote in his memoir that he cried on the field that day. The team would wear black armbands for 30 days. 10,000 people had attended Harry's wake, which was held outside of the church to accommodate the crowds. The funeral attendance would equal that. The church that buried Harry was the church he'd helped to build. The new St. George that had opened its doors earlier that year. The bishops of, of the Diocese of New York presided at the funeral with six priests, including two who had been St. George Parish priests when Harry was growing up. Red Sox pitcher Frank Sullivan had been chosen to represent the team at the funeral, which was conducted first in Greek, then in English. He later said it was one of the saddest things he'd ever seen. The Red Sox manager, general manager, assistant general manager, and several of the staff from the front office also attended. Harry lay in his casket, facing east, with his feet toward the altar, as is traditional in Orthodox services. According to the old Greek customs, he was dressed in his best suit, with a wreath of apple blossoms placed on his head and a gold wedding band on his ring finger. A wreath of flowers is worn by the bride and groom at an Orthodox wedding. The wreath and the ring symbolized the never-married Harry was now eternally married to God. These practices were common into the 1950s but were abandoned over time by the American-born diaspora. Marriage had always been seen as one of the most important events in the life of a Greek Orthodox. The next generation carrying forward Helen Z. Papanikolas says in her article about Greek immigrant funeral customs, if someone died unmarried in life, they would go to their graves as brides and grooms. Six childhood friends were his pallbearers. The 1,000 mourners squeezed into St. George included the governor of Massachusetts and the president of Boston University. Another 1,000 mourners listened to the service in the church community center, and 6,000 stood outside of the church, including hundreds of Boy Scouts in uniform. Teammate Red Sox catcher Sammy White delivered the eulogy. Quote, Harry was not only a talented athlete with the strength of Hercules, the competitive spirit and courage of a lion, and the possession of an almost ferocious desire to win. He was a leader, and at the same time a follower of all that was good. 
More than 20,000 people lined the streets for the funeral procession. It took nine cars to carry the flowers, including tributes sent by the Brooklyn Dodgers, the New York Giants, and Camp Lejeune. He was buried nearby next to his father, George. His mother said of him, God has taken him at this time to bring home to young people everywhere how high they can go from nothing if they work hard and live good lives. She wanted to believe even in death, Harry could lead by example and prove even a poor kid from an immigrant neighborhood could make it. His girlfriend, Jean, who later became known as Miss Jean on the 1950s television program Romper Room, was devastated. Jean, who eventually married and became Jean Durkee, died in this May, 2023, at the age of 90. In her obituary, her sister Lee Hughes said of Harry, he was her first great love. He died young and that broke her heart. It broke everyone's hearts. Orthodox Christians are memorialized 40 days after death. It's very important in the church. Then Archbishop Michael of North and South America decreed Harry's memorial would be observed in all of the Greek Orthodox churches in the Western Hemisphere. Salmonides said this was the first time such a tribute, usually reserved for Greek statesmen and royalty, was accorded a Greek American. Afterwards, trying to come to terms with the death of such a young and talented athlete, there were lots of questions. Why was someone who was obviously so seriously ill, as Harry was in late May, released from the hospital and cleared to play? Why was he being treated at a small, unremarkable hospital when some of the finest hospitals in the country were right there in the Boston area? Hospitals with larger and better trained staffs with more up-to-date methods and technology. It was later revealed that Harry's attending doctor had warned that Harry was at risk for dangerous blood clots and had suggested surgery. This doctor was removed from Harry's case. The credibility of this version of events was questioned after the doctor moved down to Florida and then lost his medical license after the death of several of his patients. Friends said Harry was offered the option of surgery on his leg, where the wall of the brain could be stripped, but he was told it would likely affect his speed, and the two friends stated Harry preferred to take his chances at healing without it, believing it would harm his career. There was speculation over why it happened at all. Some thought his health troubles stemmed from the injuries he sustained in the 1949 Boston University football game against the University of Maryland when the other team piled on top of Harry repeatedly to negate his threat. In fact, Red Sox general manager Dick O'Connell said, I always felt the beating he took that day contributed to his death. I'm no doctor, but I suspect blood clots sometimes don't show up for a while. Blood clots can show up days or weeks after an injury. Harry's leg had a lump on it from April. I found no explanation for what happened to his leg to cause the injury but didn't the trainers notice it? And there was speculation as to what might have been or should have been. Red Sox manager Mike Higgins told reporters he had it made. We thought he'd be our first baseman for 10 years to come. Brown and Armour for the Society for American Baseball Research wrote of Harry, though his professional career was brief, he built his fame in high school and college, leaving him arguably the greatest athlete ever to emerge from the greater Boston area. Harry's family and friends in his hometown of Lynn have continued to honor him and carry on his legacy. In 1956, the year after he died, 
the Boston Red Sox, the Lynn Journal, and Harry's mentor, Harold O. Zimmerman, created the Agonis Foundation as a continuation of the scholarship Harry had started when he left Boston University. The owner of the Red Sox, who had missed Harry's funeral, made a $25,000 donation to the foundation. The foundation still exists, awarding four $4,000 scholarships a year in eastern Massachusetts. It also sponsors the annual Aganis All-Star Classics, a series of high school all-star games in softball, baseball, men's and women's soccer, men's and women's basketball, and football. It brings the best regional high school talent to Lynn and functions as a fundraiser for foundation scholarships. The Aganis Foundation has awarded more than $1.5 million in athletic scholarships since it began. In 1995, Gaffney Street in Boston was renamed Harry Aganis Way, near the one-time Boston University football field. Football is no longer played at BU since the program was discontinued in 1995, but Harry is still respected as a great athlete. In 2004, Boston University built a 7,200-seat sports facility at the corner of Harry Aganis Way and Commonwealth Avenue for the Boston University basketball and ice hockey teams and called it Aganis Arena. Outside of the main entrance to the arena is a life-size bronze statue of Harry poised to throw a pass. The New England Sports Museum in Boston houses a similar statue in wood. Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, where Harry was stationed with the U.S. Marines for 15 months, dedicated their playing field to Harry. Agonis Field honors his service to the Marines and to his country. Back home at Lynn Classical High School, a mural of Agonis stretches across the foyer, making sure the students don't forget Lynn and their school's most famous son. In spring of 2021, the American Hellenic Educational Progressive Association, known as AHEPA, announced the Aganis Family Galatis Award for the nation's outstanding Hellenic high school athlete. It's an annual award that joins the AHEPA Harry Aganis Most Outstanding Athlete Award. The award is being funded by Harry's nephew, Mike, grandnephew, Greg, and a longtime bakery owner from Somerville, Massachusetts named Bill Galatis. These men have continued to create different philanthropic funds, awards, and events in the greater Boston area to honor and remember Harry Aganis. There have been two documentaries made about Harry. The Golden Greek, The Harry Aganis Story, was made in 2010, and Aganis, The Golden Greek, Excellence to the End, was made in 2012. Neither one was easily available for viewing at this time, and that was frustrating. Harry's effect on the people around him was so strong, it's infectious. The Society for American Baseball Research says in his 26 years, he managed to affect the lives of tens of thousands who will never forget him. High school and Boston University friend and teammate Dick Lynch once said, he was an idol. The Greek god image was an understatement, but he never let any of it go to his head. But it was the Lynn Journal that summed it up. Quote, the story of Aristotle George Hariagonis reads like an updated version of an ancient Greek myth, adorned with qualities we ascribe to the gods, but beyond the mortal coil. No one who has drawn human breath could be all the things Hariagonis was said to be, except that he was. A big thank you to the Agonis Foundation for permission to use photos of Harry. Greek Like Me is a Stealth Greek production. This episode was researched, written, and narrated by me, your host, 
Pamela Diodes-Wood. Our producer, photographer, and post-production editor is Douglas John. Special thanks to Eduardo Gill for suggesting today's topic, Harry Aganis, and for his research assistance. Visit our website at stealthgreek.com for resources, photos, links, and more. Please rate, like, and subscribe. It helps us get noticed so we can keep making content about Greeks and Greek culture. Find Greek Like Me on Facebook or on Instagram at Greek underscore like underscore me. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Yes. Yeah.